0: So my name is Vanessa Griffith and I am an attorney with Justice at Work Um, and today we are going to be discussing immigration basics and relief for victims of crime. Um, This is a jam-packed presentation because there's a lot to cover. Um, So we, like Kelly said, I would appreciate, I'm going to address questions at the end because maybe I will um, answer one of your questions as we move along. So Justice at Work, um, you know, we are a small organization with a big goal to support Pennsylvania's low-wage workers as they defend themselves against, um, against mistreatment in the workplace. We advance our mission through free legal aid, advocacy, and community outreach and education. Um, some of us may know as formerly as Friends of Farm Workers. We're still the same program and still the same mission. So uh, we currently have 14 attorneys on staff, and then 17 admin and paralegals on staff. Our main office is in Philadelphia, and um, I work out of the Pittsburgh office. Um, so our this is an overview of our legal services program, just so that you folks have a better idea of the work that we do. As you can see, we're really working um, in the employment context and helping victims of employment. Based crimes. So we have some lofty goals for this presentation and um, the first is to provide an overview of the US immigration system and laws and then we're going to identify and explain some common immigration terms and statuses that you may see and gain a better understanding about use and TV so specifically. Um, So you know the reason like, why should LLC programs care about this? Um, I don't know how many of you are actually working a lot with immigration and immigration issues, but Pennsylvania does have almost 800,000 immigrants according to the census and that number is definitely low because we're about to be um, issuing a new census and half of those 800,000 immigrants are naturalized US citizens eligible for LLC funded programs. Many more are LPRs, which are lawful permanent residents or others who are eligible for LSE funded services. Um, so first let's go over just some immigration basics. Um, and you know, before we get into it, I do wanna review some very basic terms and concepts because I don't know where, I, like, where you all are starting in terms of your knowledge of the immigration system. Um, so, just to make sure that we're all on the same page and understanding each other, uh, alien is the government's word. Uh, it is any person not a citizen or national of the United States. It includes undocumented people and those with legal status. Then we have undocumented or unauthorized, which is a person present in the United States without current legal authorization. Just um, a note about this is that, you know, this is. We don't want to be calling folks who um, don't have status in the US as illegal immigrants. That is technically incorrect. Um, the manner in which you enter the US can be illegal, but your presence in the US is not illegal. So that's why we refer to folks as undocumented, unauthorized um, visas, permission to enter and remain in the United States for specified time or purpose. Uh, refugee and asylee is a person who fled persecution in his or her home country and was granted legal permission to enter or remain in the US on this basis. And then we have what commonly referred to as removal, which is deportation from the US, which means we are bring, like sending you back to your home country. OK, so now we have who is capital I immigration? Um, So basically, this is a chart of what agencies make up immigration. So first, we have Department of Homeland Security, which is DHS, and that's the umbrella agency that includes all agencies listed below. So as you can see, it breaks up into a benefits and enforcement category. Um, So under the benefits section, we have USCIS, which is the agency adjudicating application for immigration benefits. Generally speaking, these are the affirmative applications people can do. That means that they are not in removal proceedings and they are affirmatively filing for a benefit. On the other side, you have enforcement, which is ICE, which I'm sure everyone has heard about. They are responsible for detention and deportation of certain non-citizens. They are also the prosecutors in immigration court. Then we have CBP, which patrols borders and inspects travelers at airports or other entry points. They have jurisdiction within 100 miles of the border. So um, that's important to note because CBP does have jurisdiction in Northwest PA, um, specifically in Erie, where there are a lot of immigrants. Um, There is CBP contact there and they're enforcing immigration laws there. Next, we have the Department of Justice, which underneath that is where the, you find the Executive Office for Immigration Review. This is essentially all the immigration courts, the Board of Immigration Appeals in Virginia, which is referred to as the BIA, and the adjudicative body that makes decisions about cases and deportation proceedings. Then we have Department of State, which is the agency issuing visas, and not on here, but is also in the immigration mix, as you will, is the Department of Labor, which is dealing with employment visa situations. So, the first tip I can kind of give to you is if you don't know what agency you're dealing with, someone comes to you and says, I like you can't figure out where in the process they are, get the address that is on the notice if there is one. And you can always ask the person you're working with to send you a picture of the notice, and that address can get you a lot of information about what is going on and where you may be in this whole mix of an immigration system. Okay. So cat just generally speaking categories of immigrants. Legally there are two categories. There's immigrants who come to stay, so you know, their intent is permanent. And then you have non-immigrants who come for a set period of time which commonly we think of these as tourists, students, some workers, um, and these categories are helpful in understanding how immigration law works, but they're, all, they're not so helpful in understanding the reality. And immigrants, migrants come to the United States for many different reasons, and many have mixed motives. Um, and we're going to discuss categories of immigrants more in depth later on, but this is just to give you kind of a An eagle eye approach to this. So then legally, it makes one think of immigration status as being either legal or illegal. And in reality, it's way more complex than that. And I think it is helpful to think of immigration status as a spectrum instead of just one or the other. US citizenship being the strongest and most permanent, and then no status being like on the whole other end of the spectrum. So for example you might have US citizen then it might go to lawful permanent resident then conditional lawful permanent resident which is like a precursor to LPRs then you'll have like refugee and asylees which is long term no expiration date then large number of non-immigrant statuses then you have temporary statuses like DACA and TPS which don't really aren't don't give you like immigration benefits but at least you get work authorization and then you have undocumented persons. And people are ebbing and flowing between these and could have like a, could be a non-immigrant but have a pending green card application, which gets them certain things. So that's why it's better to view this as a spectrum than just legal versus illegal or immigrant versus non-immigrant. Um, and this is just kind of a quick overview of the landscape uh, and what, how this kind of breaks up. So to give you a better idea of um, the concept of undocumented and what it means, we're going to be looking at manners of entry. Um, So entry, like how did the immigrant get here? We have lawfully, which with an immigrant or non-immigrant visa. So um, a visa is a permission from the U.S. Department of State for a certain person to enter the U.S., usually a person applies for a visa at the U.S. Embassy in their home country or in a third country, right? So these are both immigrant and non-immigrant visas, what we just discussed. Um, If you have a visa, what happens at a port of entry? An officer from CBP will review the visa and any accompanying documents and decide whether to let the person enter the United States. It helps to think of a visa as permission to present yourself at the border, not permission to enter the US. The CBC officer will make the determination regarding entry and they have that discretion. So, other manners of entry. Um, Some non citizens enter the United States without a visa and without being inspected by CBP. Uh, The term of art that we call, um, that we refer to these folks as, are IWIs, entry without inspection. So just a note again, legal entry is not an option for most EWEs. The US government would not issue them a visa to enter, which is why they resort to, um, to crossing the border, to um, entering without inspection. So manner of entry versus current immigration status. There is a difference between a person's manner of entry and their current immigration status. Many immigrants in the US who are undocumented actually entered the US legally on a visa and then overstayed their time here or violated the terms of their status in some way. Also, there are people entered without inspection who have gained legal status after that illegal entry. Um, So, We're going to lightly touch on removal and deportation and detention. This is a huge category. We could talk all day about this, but I'm frankly not an expert in this. I'm working more on the affirmative side, so I'm just going to go through some points here. Um, So removal and deportation, this is conducted by Department of Homeland Security. right? So we're looking at um, ICE enforcement and removal, we're looking at Homeland Securities and Investigations and CBP. Um, just to give you some numbers, in the fiscal year of 2018, 570,000, there were five hundred seventy thousand apprehensions. Four hundred thousand were at the border. One hundred seventy thousand were in, at the interior. Our detention system is huge. It's there's forty two thousand folks in detention daily. That's three hundred thousand plus annually. Um, You know, with the current administration, we are seeing a lot of raids and what we refer to as collateral arrests. That means if ICE shows up at someone's house looking for a very specific person and then they see other folks there that um, are undocumented or they learn that they're undocumented, they will also take those folks into the detention or place them into removal proceedings most people detained by ICE have a right to a hearing before a judge orders them deported. Um, And removal proceedings basically begin when the charging documents are filed with the immigration court. The first hearing is called a master calendar hearing um, and then eventually they'll be scheduled for an individual hearing where the actual trial takes place. Just for, um, so during COVID, a side note, during COVID, there haven't been any non-detained immigration court hearings. And I had a client who was scheduled for June 4th um, to have her master, her first master calendar hearing. And because of COVID, they, we, you know, it got postponed and we received notice that it is postponed until March 21st of 2021 which is kind of crazy when you think of already the huge backlog that we have that we're seeing in immigration court and now with COVID how this is impacting the system. Um, So that's just some information for you about where we are. Uh, Just an overview of detention. Keep in mind, many single men are arrested by ICE will be detained, so you know, people who are driving to work, men driving to work, and there's a traffic stop and then ICE is called, they're more likely to be detained and sent to locally at uh, the York County prison, which has a special immigration detention facility. ICE also contracts with a number of other jails in the state of Pennsylvania. Um, And it's important to note that Pennsylvania also has one of two family detention centers in the U.S., which is located in Berks County. Um, Parents are detained together with their children at this facility. You might hear about this movement um, that's shut down Burks, which is working uh just lobbying Governor Wolf to shut down this detention facility. So um, you know, this is a lot, and we're gonna be going through a lot, but I also want to give you some practical <laughs> knowledge for when you have someone who's like, I'm an immigrant, but I don't and you don't understand like their status or where they are. We're gonna look at some documents that can help you. So um, Proof of status. One place that you might see where they are in the system is in what we call the Employment Authorization document or EAD. Immigration attorneys love acronyms and shortcuts for names. So here where you're looking at is category on the EAD and this will tell you what the immigration status is, but you're gonna have to look up that category um, which is easy to do. You could just type in EAD category and then the category that's listed and into Google, and it will pull up um, the answer for you. So here, this person is under the C9 category, which is for pending green card. So this likely means that the person doesn't have status. um, Otherwise, that allows them to have other work authorization, but they are in the process of getting, um, of becoming an LPR. And that they have a green card application pending, so um, that's one document that could be helpful. An other is proof of status in a visa. So you, um, if somebody has a visa in their passport, you can go look under type, and so this one states F one, which is a student visa. Again, you can easily you know Google these types or categories, and it will it'll pull up the answers for you. Um, So this can just give you a better understanding of where the folks you're helping with are. And last is proof of status. You can look at the I-9-4 card. And card is in um, quotation marks because, you know, CBP used to give folks an actual card that looks like what is on the right there. And um, that w- when you enter, you know, at a port of entry and people, folks would just like throw it in the passport, whatever. Now we have an automated I-9-4 system and cards are no longer given. So CB- CBP creates an electronic I-9-4 card. This one is a little bit, requires a little bit more work. That means you're gonna have to Google, you know, I-9-4, go to the website, which on the left is c- kind of what, it's a CBP website, you know, and then you're going to have to insert the person's biographic information, and um, then you'll see their, like, what their admission was, um, and where you see class of admission, B1. Um, so that is, requires a little bit more, a few more steps, and if you, like, mess up the name, it can be a little, it can be harder, but it is um, another tool folks can use. For And but this would only be for people who um, entered with inspection. Okay, so we're getting into the more dense part of the PowerPoint, um, which is immigrant and non-immigrant visas. There is going to be a lot of content on these slides and I might not address all of it, but I do want to put it in there for you folks to you know, to at least have the information, and I will be giving Kelly this PowerPoint, so <laughs> bear with me. Um, types of Im- visas. Okay, so just a reminder, this is where we are. Immigrant and non-immigrant, right? So immigrant intent is permanent, and if you have an immigrant visa, you then can eventually become, a, from there, naturalize. Non-immigrant visas um, there's a ton of categories, and again, it's for a certain period of time. Some non-immigrant visas allow you to adjust to an immigrant visa or to, um, you know, a lawful permanent resident, and then you can be on the path to citizenship, which you will see later on. So, family or family-based visas. Again, this is like there's a lot going on here and um but you know when you watch the news and you're hearing about chain migration and like how scary this concept is i want i do want to talk about family based pieces a little bit because you like it is not as easy as they make it seem and um you know the bad media out there how they're framing this and like what is actually going on so US citizens can, and LPRs, can petition for immediate relatives, which is a term of art. It's not just people who live with you, Um, there are specific folks that are deemed immediate relatives. So for US citizens, you can help your spouse, parent, child, or sibling apply, apply for an immigrant visa. So when you hear anchor babies, right, like someone comes to the U.S. to have a baby so that that baby can become a U.S. citizen and then like I can then become a green card holder. That person is going to have to wait 21 years until their child is over the age of 21 to apply for them. So in, you know, a parent or a sibling, the petitioning relative has to be 21. So anchor babies, like that's, I mean, I guess like if long term you're willing to wait 21 years it's not a quick way to be getting status um, a permanent resident can help their spouse or their minor unmarried children to apply for an immigrant visa and just another note you know uh, immigrant like you're waiting a while for some of these visa categories um, so for many there's a long wait I was just trying to figure out like an example um, before this presentation to give you guys an idea, and these weights are based on countries. So certain countries have different wait times based on like how many of um, folks from those countries are coming to the U.S. So for um, a U.S. citizen to petition for their unmarried son or daughter who's over the age of 21 they're right now adjudicating cases from 1997, which is like over 20 years a person's waiting. So there's just, this isn't always a quick way to get status. Um, And again, it depends on the relate, the the length of wait depends on the immigration status of the petitioner, are you a US citizen or an LPR, and then the familiar relationship between the two parties and the person's country of origin you're going to be looking at a visa bulletin. It's very complicated, um, but I do just want to like touch on that. And um, another thing that's really complicated that people don't understand is there's a difference between adjusting status and consular processing. So adjusting status is limited people who who have made a lawful entry into the United States are qualified for special exceptions um, and can adjust. To without leaving the country. Um, But in general, most people have to do consular processing when they want to adjust. So, say you overstayed and you now you're married to a US citizen, like you're gonna, a lot of people are gonna have to consular process. And the reason that this is an issue is to consular process, you need to be deemed admissible to the United States. And there are a huge number of criminal grounds for criminal inadmissibility. You don't need to be convicted to trigger these. And the biggest place clients get tripped up with immigration violate, it get tripped up is with immigration p- violations. So like past negative immigration history. Um, so, you know, you entered the US EWE without inspection. And now you have like unlawful presence you know, these can trigger all different bars for consular processing. And so you might leave the country so that you could adjust to become an LPR because you're married to a citizen. But the moment you leave, you're triggering bars and now you're no longer admissible to re-enter. Again, this is like very complicated. And at least at job, we don't do family-based visas. And whenever folks are coming to us with like these complicated questions, we are always referring out because um, it's changing. And uh, we just want to make sure that people are getting in-depth advice about this.
1: Vanessa, I'm sorry, this is Kelly. If I could just interrupt for the attorneys on the webinar, I just launched the first of the two poll questions. If you could please just respond yes or no, so I can track your participation. I will leave this up for one minute. And Vanessa, you're free to continue now. Thank you. Okay. Um. Sorry. So, uh,
0: diversity visas. This is exactly what it sounds like. It's a lottery for a green card. I'm not going to talk much about this. It is a thing. There's 50,000 green cards a year that are given through the, this program. It's not valid, or it's not available to someone in the United States. They're is a lot of fraud surrounding this lottery but again it is real so if somebody says that they have a diversity visa they may actually have one and you do need to like certain countries are excluded from this program which are high population countries so you know countries that we typically in the US see a lot of folks immigrating from we do like those are usually excluded and you can look this up um and there is a 1% chance of winning it so but it is out there and it is an immigrant visa And okay, sorry. So, employment-based visas. There are both permanent and non-permanent employment-based visas, which means the intent could be permanent or non-permanent. I so employers can sponsor extraordinary, professional, other skilled, and you can't see my fingers, but I'm putting them in quotes. Unskilled workers. and that you know they can sponsor. I'm not going to focus too much on this either because generally speaking employers are the ones in control of this process and a person can't just apply for one without an employer agreeing to sponsor them. So it's just good to know that this is a complex process involving the Department of Labor and it's not as easy again as the media and others might make it seem. So um, The employer must prove that they can't find a worker domestically due to shortage. And this all is, you know, this is part of the Department of Labor process. There are very few visas available for unskilled workers, but there are many labor shortages, especially in Pennsylvania. And generally speaking, a person can't apply for an employment-based visa from within the United States. There are exceptions, of course, with everything involving the law. And then the need for labor and the lack of legal path for these workers is one of the main factors in the growth of the undocumented population. So um, in our term of work, we're, we're usually working a lot with agricultural workers and um, other, again, quotes unskilled workers who um, are here on temporary visas, so non-immigrant-based visas, which are your H-2A and H-2B. They're, usually known as seasonal workers. So they come in for the season and then they return to their home country and they come in again. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that when we talk about trafficking. So humanitarian immigration. Um, the relief on this slide focuses on things that have happened to a person in their home country. So our major programs here are refugee and asylum programs. Um, In a legal sense, they are very similar, but in a procedural sense, they're wildly different. So refugee status, well-founded fear of persecution, on account of one's race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular social group, or political opinion. Particular social group, there's tons of litigation varying circuit to circuit about that category. And it is currently, a lot of the news that you see around asylum, a lot of it is the current administration attacking what has previously been defined as particular social group. Um, so, you know, home countries, uh, government cannot protect the person and refugees enter the United States legally through the refugee resettlement program. They're eligible for many public benefits. So when we're talking about asylum status, um, it's the same legal standard as refugee, but the application is filed in the United States. So a lot of times folks who are applying asylum seekers, they are entering either lawfully, but like under, for example, a tourist visa. Because um, that's the one way they can get in and then they want to apply for um, to become an asylum or they're entering at the border because they don't have any way to enter. So um, they are they have a one-year filing deadline, which there's exceptions? And if a parent is granted a asylum, a child can then be granted derivative asylum status. Because you're likely either an overstay or EWE, if your asylum is denied, um, you will, you know, and that could be denied for asylum, you can apply affirmatively, so you're not in removal proceedings or defensively. Either way, it ends up being that, like, if it's denied and you don't have other relief, you will be deported. So these are two other categories that I'm going to just lightly touch base on because there's a lot to unpack here. But special immigrant juvenile status, SIG. SIG is a form of immigration relief available to youth who have been abused, abandoned, or neglected by one or both parents. Um, the child must and must be under 21 years old at the time of filing with USCIS, um, and the children who become U.S. citizens through SIG can never petition for either parent to get legal status. Um, and children who are apprehended by CBP and ICE and place removal proceedings can still apply for SIG. Um, again, this is really complicated because there is a lot of pushback from the current administration on this status. And um, to be eligible, you need to have um, be declared dependent but on a juvenile court or placed in custody of an individual or state agency. So there is a requirement of state court um, determinations in order to even be eligible for this. So there's a lot going on here and again, like I could spend a whole other hour on Sage and like where issues are arising, but it's good to know that that is an option. Um, The Violence Against Women Act, VAWA. This is um, a path to permanent resident status for abused spouse, parent, or child of a US citizen, or LPR. And the abuse can be physical um, or psychological or emotional. Um, What's a a benefit of VAWA is that it is both, you could file it affirmatively. or defensively, it is considered defense and removal proceedings. And the way to just think about VAWA is when you're thinking about the family-based immigration system and how a US citizen or LPR can petition for their wife or husband to you know, get status, this is just taking out that person and you're essentially self-petitioning for yourself based on the relationship of being married to a US citizen or LPR. Um, so, what's great about VOW is you don't need law enforcement certification like you're going to need for some of the other ones that we are talking about. Or there's like no law, there's no requirement of even law enforcement involvement. Um, so, and then there's two other humanitarian immigration categories which are U's and T's, but that is we're going to touch on that later on in the presentation. And then just you know, legal options for undocumented immigrants. The vast majority of undocumented immigrants living in the United States have no way to get legal status without a change in law. There are exceptions. We'll touch on some of these exceptions later on. Um, but just to know that like, if they become a victim of a crime, they're likely eligible for an exception and can get lawful status. I'm going to quickly go over citizenship. It's just one slide, but just so folks know, can anyone who wants to become a citizen become one? No. First, somebody has to have a green card. Um, And then, so how do you get a green card? There's only a few ways, and not everyone is eligible for one. Um, So there are three ways to become a US citizen under a law, which is being born in the United States, going through the naturalization process, and being born abroad to a US citizen, parent, or having a parent naturalize when you are under the age of 18. Lawful permanent residents may become US citizens. Eligible immigrants may choose to go through the process of naturalization to become a US citizen, but they are not required to do so. I'm not gonna go over eligibility and all of that for this. Okay, so we are, I promise, at the halfway point, or maybe a little past the halfway point, and now we're finally discussing U's and T's, um, which is your, you know, the more subs, more in-depth discussion about two particular uh, visa options. So U visa, which is for victims of serious crimes, um, so it's a special immigrant visa, and this is a non-immigrant visa category. For individuals who have been victims of certain kinds of crimes and reported to authorities, spouse and children of adult victims can qualify. Parents and siblings of minor victims can, can qualify. Um, so we're just going to go over the eligibility. Um, so you have to be uh, a victim of a qualifying crime, and so you know, you there's a list in the statute of all the qualifying crimes that you know count. And it is domestic violence. You know, then the more typical ones that you're thinking of, like murder and ass- physical assault, and um, you can look those up. But I do want to highlight workplace crimes. Um, so at jaw we're working a lot with workplace crimes. That's um, our VOCA funding. You know, is to help victims of workplace crimes. And so there are, you know, U visas uh, for victims of workplace crimes. You can look, and there's just, I listed a few, sexual assault, harassment, stalking, extortion, trafficking, forced labor. Um, So just so folks know that um, you do, there has to be helpfulness to law enforcement. So you have to be reporting to police or a law enforcement agency and complying with any reasonable requests from law enforcement officers. So um, this means that a certification by a law enforcement agency is required. Um, and then you also have substantial physical and mental harm. So you need to show that you've suffered substantial physical or mental harm. This, um, is usually presumed for victims of violence. You know, um, it's just easier for USCIS to like understand how there was definitely substantial physical or mental harm. It is a hurdle that we face in employment-based U visas because we have to be more creative and like showing how um, workplace harassment is substantial mental harm and physical harm in some cases. Um, so it requires, at least at JAWFRS, to like really like pull that out for USCIS. Um, and then what's you know, talking about like undocumented folks who um, may be eligible for status, this is one of the categories. Uh, there's very generous waivers of grounds of inadmissibility associated with the U visa, which means that um, you, know, you could have been in the United States, and this will be the same for the T visa, so you could have been in the United States for 10 years, and then you became a victim of a serious crime, you did all of the things you needed to do, you reported, you, know, you maybe even testified, and now you're eligible for a U visa, and we can apply for a waiver of admissibility for the 10 you know, the unlawful presence or whatever inadmissibility you have. Um, and it's, you know, if we argue it correctly, it could, it could be waived. So that's, is a great option to think of, um, for some folks. So what law enforcement agencies can certify, uh, you have local, state, federal law enforcement officers, state and federal prosecutors, you know, child and youth agencies, judges, and then like for employment situations, you also have like other investigative agencies such as Um, EEOC, Department of Labor, Human Relations Commission, I'll note that it's in their discretion to sign the U certification. Um, So that means that they do not have to sign it. And a lot of agencies have internal protocols of how they want to receive the U certifications. So um, at least for us, I would never promise somebody that they're going to get a U visa if we don't have the cert yet. The first Step is always obtaining the U-certification because if you can't get that, you cannot apply for the U-visa. So that's just important to note. T-visas, victims of trafficking. So first, I just, you know, human trafficking or what is trafficking and I I just want to address that there's like a very common misconception that um, there needs to be a crossing of a border for the crime of trafficking to have occurred. Um, And let's blame this on the fact that it's called trafficking, right? Traffic movement, trafficking, um, drug trafficking even, right? So, but really when we're looking at human trafficking, that there is no requirement that there's a crossing of a border for a person to be deemed a victim of trafficking. That's human smuggling. Human smuggling is consensual. It's a method of securing unlawful entry to a country. It usually involves a fee paid by a person being smuggled. The relationship with the smuggler usually ends, um, usually ends upon arrival in the destination country. And um, smuggling can turn to trafficking. I said I wasn't gonna do this, but I did see some questions in the chat that I can quickly answer, which is yes, law enforcement certifications are only good for six months. You would have to ask them to renew it. And yes, VAWA is only for for if you were married to, legally married to a US citizen or LPR. Okay, sorry, I said I wasn't gonna do that, but I couldn't help it. Um, so, back to smuggling trafficking, it's good to know that smuggling can turn into trafficking. You could have agreed to enter into that smuggling relationship and then it's transformed into trafficking. Um, So another thing to note is popular imagination versus reality. I think because, you know, trafficking, a lot of times we're thinking immediately of sex trafficking and of these like very like horrible images that I think media in Hollywood put out there, you know, movies about human trafficking. And so folks like think it's a very almost like rare thing that like, where you're not likely going to have a victim of trafficking come into your office. In reality, that is not the case. We are like always against like all of these horrible images of like bondage and, you know, um, being locked in a room because trafficking is a lot is can be um, a very different image than that and especially labor trafficking, which which is why we um, really always are trying to go out there and educate people on labor trafficking because it happens way, way more than people think. The legal definitions of trafficking are broad and so here are just some common industries for labor trafficking that we might um, that we've seen at least at JAW Um, and if you're looking at these categories of common industries, there is a significant overlap in industries that rely on temporary work visas, which are the H2A, H2B visas, the seasonal worker visas. Okay. So um, let's human trafficking defined. We are going to have to look at uh, at least one statute during this presentation. So um, trafficking Victims Protection Act is a federal response to human trafficking. The law was passed in 2000 and has been reauthorized several times since. It created and defined trafficking and forced labor as crimes. It created special protections for victims of trafficking including immigration relief and other benefits. It created special funding for service providers and in 2003 it amended, it was amended to include a private right of action for victims. So this is where we can find the definition is under the TVPA. And under the law, a severe form of trafficking in persons um, means, so the first one is sex trafficking. And sex trafficking in which a commercial sex act is induced by fraud, fraud, or coercion, or in which the person induced to perform such an act has not attained 18 years of age. With these with both of these definitions, so many of these terms have other definitions. So like I really encourage you, if you do want to look more at this issue, to like look at their regulations and the TVP to see, for example, how they define a commercial sex act, right? That because courts and USCIS has defined commercial sex act very broadly. Um, so it's which again is why I'm pushing back on your like the notion that you might have in your mind of what commercial sex trafficking is because really under the law it's just a requirement of an exchange occurring and that exchange does not need to be money for sex right it can be um other things like clothing food safety employment like there's all these other ways that we can broadly define this and it's actually a really interesting area of the law i think Um, especially in this like me too era so just I like um, I encourage people to you know get into those regulations and read some of these definitions because I'm not going to be going in depth here Um, and then B is our labor trafficking definition which is the recruitment harboring transportation provision or obtaining of a person for labor or services through the use of fraud, fraud, or coercion for the purpose of, <laughs> deep breath, um, subjection to involuntary servitude, peonage, debt bondage, or slavery. Of course, that one is, seems a lot more dense, um, but don't worry, we have a plain language definition here. So labor trafficking occurs when employers create situations in which workers are forced physically or otherwise to continue working whether they like it or not. Again, I encourage you to focus on the definite how the law defines fraud and coercion. Um, And so for example, coercion includes threats of physical harm as well as abuse or threatened abuse of legal process. What's bolded there, an example of abuse um, of the legal process are immigration threats. So for example, if somebody said, if your employer says, if you don't come in tomorrow, I'm gonna call ICE. I'm gonna call the police. I'm gonna, if you like, don't do this job, I'm gonna send you back to your country. These are all immigration threats and all are huge red flags of labor trafficking. And cases have even found that if an employer is issuing immigration threats, that's like in and of itself is labor trafficking. So, again, there's a lot to unpack here. And I'm just trying to do this in broad strokes, but I do like, I do wanna harp that like, this is very broad and these definitions on, you know, have a lot of case law supporting them, in like how courts are interpreting this. So, um, reasons why immigrants are particularly vulnerable to trafficking. Um, there is a lot of fear of deportation, lack of knowledge of the U.S. system, language barriers. There's a huge list, and we give like whole presentations on why immigrants um, barriers to assistance and why immigrants are vulnerable to workplace exploitation, but. As you know, um, these are the the immigrants that we see, right? So guest worker visa programs, which are the H2A, H2B seasonal workers, um, they are particularly vulnerable. This is an employment-based visa um, that is, so like other employment-based visas, it's tied to the employer. The moment you leave the employer, you lose the visa, which as you can imagine is a huge power imbalance and makes seasonal workers very vulnerable to workplace abuse and labor trafficking. Also, a lot of seasonal workers don't usually understand their rights and rely on the information their employer tells them, which can be very problematic. And then um, undocumented immigrants and just generally any immigrant that's lacking employment opportunities can become susceptible to labor trafficking. So after that intro, let's look at eligibility. Again, the T visa is for victims of human trafficking. It's also designed as a tool for law enforcement agencies to uncover human trafficking. It is very similar to the U visa and structure. So you have to be a victim of a severe form of trafficking. So you're going to have to look at the regulations and the laws to see do you meet the definition of sex trafficking and labor trafficking. Then you have to prove that you are in the United States on account of trafficking. If somebody leaves the US after, their trafficking experience, they are no longer eligible for the T visa. Um, so you have to comply with reasonable requests from assistance from law enforcement. The pro to this is that you do not need a law enforcement certification to apply. So you need to report the trafficking. And you know if an agency does investigate, you do need to um, cooperate, but they do not need to sign the certification. Um, so we just have to show that we requested it. Would you, and then you have to show that you would suffer hardship involving extreme and unusual circumstances if removed from the U.S. And again, there are very generous waivers of grounds of inadmissibility. You can be in the U.S. for 20 years and and start a new job and be, and be a victim of trafficking and now be eligible for the TV and then, um, you know, eventually... Adjust to LPR and maybe even naturalize. So it is a great path forward. Um. So this is kind of what we're seeing, and this is I just wanted to put this in here so you guys can better understand like why I'm so against these Hollywood images of trafficking. Right. So you can see, like, a person could be either recruited from their home country to travel to the U.S. So like guest workers, seasonal workers, um, or they were recruited unlawfully. Um. They could a person could have been hired in the U.S. without work authorization, and that's how they entered into their trafficking situation. Um, when we're looking at the, def- you know, how, like, what facts support force fraud or coercion, um, you can, under fraud, promise promises about wages, housing, or, like, employers that say, hey, I can get you a green card. No, they can't. So that is, but a lot of folks don't know that, and they think that they can, so then they enter into, like, they, you know, are exploited at work, and stay in the situation because they think that they're going to get a green card out of it. Um, Serious threats of harm, again, immigration threats, violent behavior, blacklisting, saying, you know, I'm going to tell everyone not to hire you, Um, scheme pattern or plan, withholding pay to compel work, uh, verbal abuse and humiliation, isolation and controlled activities, Um, exploiting vulnerabilities, and then what, looks, what, is like what makes up labor trafficking, right? These folks could be working very long hours, significant amounts of under, unpaid labor, lack of access to bathrooms, adequate food and water, just overall dangerous working conditions, untreated injuries. So I just like, this is just like a very small set of facts that could be supporting how we're breaking up the labor trafficking um, definition. Okay, um, you and DT Tisa benefits. So, what's so great about these? Um, is that they are non-immigrant visas. They give you four years of lawful immigration status. Um, and you, you get work authorization. And within three years, you can apply to, for lawful permanent residence. And then, certain family members can derive status. So, you can they can be derivatives on your T and U visa applications and you have access to benefits. I will say that now U visas are taking forever because of the backlog so um, if you do see someone that you think is U visa eligible I like strongly encourage you to also try to see if they're eligible for any other immigration relief because the whatever other immigration relief they're eligible for will likely be way quicker than a U visa which is Right now, if I sent in a U visa application, the person probably isn't going to actually get the U visa for 10 years, which is absurd and crazy. Um, so T visas, for example, are much quicker and is like the quick form of humanitarian relief, although we have seen processing times increase in the past couple of years, and they're currently taking about like two years or so, two and a half. Okay, so just some things to remember about U's and T's. When counseling someone who has not yet reported a crime, it is important to think that, help them think about all the possible ramifications, including the fact that they may be required to testify in court and their family and their in their home country could be at risk, um, especially for folks who are undocumented. You really wanna like play out all the scenarios. Okay, so just, Quickly, I'm gonna, you know, go through this. I know we're running out of time. Reminders and tips. Um, again, I just want to stress as LSC funded orgs, you can usually, you know, at least all of the humanitarian bases you are likely can serve them. So there's a link here, you know, so you can like visit what immigrate, what immigrants you're allowed to serve. But I just want to stress that a lot of you could be serving these folks. Um, language access is huge. All federally funded legal aid agencies must provide interpretation and translation free of charge to clients who need it. Um, make use of language line services when necessary, including at intake. So, you know, I encourage you all to think about what foreign languages are spoken by um, most by, the re- by in the regions that you serve. Are your flyers and telephone system and website um, and, for- and frontline staff equipped to meet that need. And just again, think about you know barriers to seeking assistance. Like why folks have such a hard time getting assistance and asking for help is because of language access, uh, no familiarity with the U.S. or state systems, they're unaware of rights or availability of services, economic concerns. So not only like do is there this assumption that assistance is unaffordable, but also you know fear that if they do you know talk to someone about a workplace crime that the employer would threaten or retaliate against them and then they lose their job and how are they going to support their family? Um, other like work and childcare demands, um, literacy and education levels, and of course fear of deportation. Um, so all of these affect immigrants and why they might be having trouble accessing any like seeking any assistance, not just immigration. Um, so just some tips, you know. Know who the reputable immigration legal service providers are. Immigration law is complicated and the stakes are very, very high. Call experts for advice and clients should be aware of notario fraud and immigration services fraud. Um, When to call JAW, you know, someone is having an issue at work, lives or works in Pennsylvania. You have questions about workplace immigration relief and are seeking technical assistance. You want to organize an educational event or are looking for educational materials. You're not sure whether someone is an attorney or something seems off by the legal representation your um, client is receiving. So we have a Pittsburgh and Philadelphia office. We service the whole state of Pennsylvania. Um, We are all working from home, but there are folks, we are going into the office uh, to collect mail and stuff, and then we're answering the phones for sure. We are fully operating um, just remotely. And here's just some of my information. I'm sorry that this went for so long, but I am, well, open to other to some questions in the few minutes we have left. I'm going to open the chat box.
1: Um, While you do that and while people may type in any questions that they have, I'm just going to launch the second of the CLE poll boxes. Attorneys on the webinar, please respond to the question. Non-attorneys, it won't hurt anything if you do respond. Um, It's just not necessary. and I believe there is one question in there, Vanessa.
0: Yes, I do see the question. Um so
1: unfortunately, both U
0: and T visas are not removal, de- are not defenses to removal. So you can't apply for that and have it adjudicated by um the immigration judge. What usually well, what we've seen happen is, you know, someone is in removal proceedings and they have a pending T visa, for example, or a U visa, um, and the judge might grant continuances or put them on like a um, status docket to, uh, and then like to wait to see how USCIS adjudicates the case. And if it's approved, then you can like close the immigration case. But no, they're not defenses, unfortunately. Uh, does an LSE program have to see a certification to help someone eligible for a U-Visa? I do not believe so, um, right? Because that's just one, I think like you need to know if the person is a victim of um, a, of a serious crime. And if we look at I think like you can look at the regs and see because it's not just you, like they don't just have to be eligible for UV, visas. They could have been victims of other crimes to still be
1: eligible for LSE programs, but I would double check that. Anybody have any more questions that you'd like to type in before it's time to end the webinar? While we wait to see if any come in, I'd just like to thank you, Vanessa, for being with us today and for doing this presentation. We really appreciate it and we got some good information.
0: And I encourage anyone, my email's here, my phone number's here, please, if you have any questions or um, wanna talk more, you can definitely reach out to me. Um, I always appreciate it when present like, presenters uh, answer my questions if I ask them like via email or anything. So feel free, we're very
1: approachable. Okay, well, everybody have a wonderful weekend. And, um, For those who will be joining Monday's webinar, the um, registration link was sent out. So um, that was the one that was to be determined and it finally got scheduled. So we'll see you Monday. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Vanessa. Take care. Great. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye.